This is a Maybe You Like It production. To find more productions, including podcasts, radio plays, and stage plays, visit www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Well, this is just something I worked up. Uh, I'll do it for you. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Hello, I'm Jake and this is the Maybe You Like It podcast, a podcast where we take a play or film that has never been staged before or is never likely to be staged again and we talk about how we'd stage it. As always, I'm joined by Caleb. Hello. Hello. And after much discussion, after a long period of deciding what to purchase and what software to use, we've finally worked out how to podcast in isolation. Yeah. Just yeah. like all other young men of our age. Yeah, it only took us four weeks longer than anybody else um <laughs> but we've finally done it <laughs> we managed it and then once we got on to a call nearly two hours ago uh that long to actually get the technology working and we still don't know if it will work because we haven't we haven't tested the editing so that's all going to be great fun uh hello jake editing this or caleb editing this uh, i hope you're having fun um, yeah yeah but hopefully now we've got all this set up we can be a regular old podcast Doing yeah, finally, finally, games. actually, be a regular podcast, which I think that would be the first time that we've actually managed to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. Well, we won't have we won't have term in our way, will we? No, oh, that's uh, true. Well, not well, not for a while anyway. <laughs> um, so this is, I guess, we could call this maybe series two, maybe. I suppose the so. first episode. Yeah, let's do that. Why not? Um, Why not? We have one special guest episode in the bank, which we will reasons which will become obvious we'll be releasing a little bit later in the year um but today we are talking about press cuttings by george bernard shaw indeed i have just mere weeks ago finished writing a thesis on george bernard shaw um which was <laughs> i mean completely sucked the life out of me but this play uh drew me back to him um because it's just so much fun um it's a farcical comedy um, about the uh, issues for the government um, surrounding the suffragette movement in the early 1900s. It was written in 1909, and it's this kind of ridiculous uh, play that sort of... It's sure showing every conceivable uh, way of being an anti-suffragette, being part of the anti-suffragette league or whatever, um, and, and the different views that are sort of anti-feminist in the times. And he kind of goes through and shows all of those different views and uh, in doing so shows how ridiculous and farcical and silly all of those views are. So it's kind of light on plot to kind of give some plot or some idea of a plot. Basically, it's set in the uh, war office in 1911. So it was actually set in uh, a couple of years in the future um, and actually set on April Fool's Day as well. And it's basically the the idea is that London is completely overrun with suffragettes and the prime minister has to sneak into the war office to speak to uh, General Michener in order to come up with some idea of how to get rid of the suffragettes. And the way he sneaks in is dressed as a suffragette and chaining himself to the front of the war office. Um, from there... Which is hilarious. Yeah, it is, yeah. And, and from there, uh, different characters are introduced. Um, so there's... Uh, General Michener is... Uh, he has to take on the role of being head of the British Army at the time. 
And then there's obviously the the Prime Minister who is Bullsquiff. Um, the reason I'm saying the names is because those two have a certain significance um, because Michener obviously sounds a lot like Lord Kitchener, uh, who was obviously played a vital role in World War One. Um, and Bullsquiff was um, a combination of uh, Arthur Balfour, who was PM from 1902 to 1905, and Asquith, who was PM from uh, 1908 um, through the time that this was written and put on. Um so uh, there's them, and then there's an orderly. Uh, there's uh, Mrs. Farrell, who is um, Michener's uh, charwoman, his like cleaner. Uh, and then there's two people from the Anti-Suffragette League, uh, Mrs. Banger and Lady Corinthia. And like I said, they all kind of show these different views of um, the suffragette movement and being against it. Um, and each one is kind of seen to be ridiculous. And then at the end, <laughs> they kind of all end up getting married which is just surreal yeah okay so yeah well thank i was i was a bit confused as to, as to what was real and what wasn't there so that's really cleared it up for me um i think i guess so so he sure is is imagining a, a kind of near future where martial law exists or was there already martial law in 09 no there wasn't was there there, there wasn't at all no it, he's a, yeah he's imagining a a a, a yeah, and a future where martial law has to be enforced because there are so many suffragettes lining the streets of London um, and causing generally causing issues. Yeah, and and the policy that they've come up with is is to is to ban women from being in Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ban them from being within two miles of Westminster. Um, well, and the issue is that they they just have no way of enforcing that um, without shooting them, um, and that kind of so basically that yeah, the whole play is leading towards. Uh, I, I need to um, to give to grant women the vote uh, simply because uh, it it means that they're less of a hassle uh, than overrunning the whole of Westminster, <laughs> and that kind of yeah, it's kind of the conclusion that Shaw gives us, which is a very sort of very sure to give us that kind of subversive um, take. Is so yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit about when it was first performed. Um, just because I think it's kind of interesting because it is very much of its time in some senses. Mm -hmm. um, so at the time, the, the censor was a big issue for playwrights in Britain and George Bernard Shaw was often getting in trouble with the censor. Um, and at first it was not allowed to be performed because specifically because of the names of the general and the prime minister because it was clear that um, Shaw was kind of poking fun at those specific figures. Right. Um, so interestingly, the censor did allow the production to go ahead with different names for them. And you'll never guess what, but the Prime Minister, the different name was Prime Minister Johnson. No. Yeah, yeah. So when this was first performed, the the sort of bumbling Prime Minister who has to deal with the suffragette movement is Prime Minister Johnson, which is hilarious. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it was performed in 1909 and then it was performed again in 1912 and it was paired with a play by uh, Cicely Hamilton who was a big suffragette playwright um, called How the Vote Was Won, which again is kind of about a, a similar issue. Uh, that Interestingly, that one still gets performed, but uh, this play by Shaw hasn't been performed in quite a long time. There has been radio plays in the 70s, um, but no nothing since then. Yeah, Reader's Radio Play, I was I was thinking about that maybe other than one joke it kind of because it's all in one room yeah there's the main action is people leaving and entering the room um uh, or maybe pulling revolvers on each other which will have very distinct sounds um so i think it like it reads very well as a radio play 
And even the pulling the revolvers on each other, that is all like really strongly signified in the dialogue. So you wouldn't even necessarily need a sound effect in that you can just have, you know, it works within the dialogue to be saying, be arguing against someone and say, please get the revolver out of my face. And that almost becomes a punchline in and of itself. Yeah, no, for sure. Like there are lots of jokes that are revelations, but they can be revelations in dialogue rather than in um, visually. So like, for example, you'd have thought that you'd need visuals to come off this joke where the suffragette comes in and takes off her dress and she is the prime minister. Mm. But actually you don't because the the joke of it is when he says, uh, he says something like, no, you fool, it is I, Bullsquith or yeah, whatever his yeah. name is. In here, well, that's the whole thing, right? Is that the the general is, and the general's commentating the whole thing, saying, "Oh, you can't be taking your dress off in here. I can't, I can't, you know, be having you doing any of that." And then it's Bullsquiff announcing himself. So that whole thing works in dialogue as well as in action. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so I mean, so the main theme then is 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 suffrage and and Bernard Shaw kind of critiquing some of the arguments against it and the this subversive idea of the, the anti suffragette league. They don't like suffragettes because they think that suffrage will give women less power, uh, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we've also got the orderly has his own ambitions as well, which are more class based. Yeah, the orderly is really interesting because his yeah his whole thing is that um, he was a the son of a barber. He was kind of uh, you know respected because his family owned a business um and so he was kind of in the sort of lower middle classes and now he's just you know a simple soldier a common soldier and so he has actually taken a step down to join the military um which is yeah i, I kind of again another sort of subversive take on that thing of mm. um a barber because it, it was again like i'm saying like lower in the middle classes it would be considered that, that like maybe it was a step up to be able to get into the military and be you know be alongside figures like the prime minister and general michener um but actually he he sees it entirely as a step down from his position before which is yeah mm. again the whole thing with Shaw is it's a combination of um subverting sort of expectation of character um so like the way that michener kind of like is hysterical at various moments in the play when he's meant to be this sort of cool level-headed um general um and and how sort of the prime minister is meant to be very sort of effeminate despite the fact that he's meant to be holding up sort of masculine male values um so that's all about subversion but it's also just about um Shaw was a kind of master of using dialogue and conversation to, to really just show points of view rather than actually portray any action. So like you said, there's not really much plot here, but it's all just actually conversation between characters and them explaining their points of view and, and their arguments for um, or even against suffrage for uh, women. Yeah, for sure. It, it it kind of reads to me as it's a series of duologues almost. It's it's the the major and the prime minister have a conversation, and then the major and the orderly have a small conversation, and then the major and Mrs. Farrell, and the longer conversation between the major and the orderly, and then then there's the two women in the room, and there's one woman in the room uh, the of the anti suffrage movement, and then they all come together at the end to get married for some reason, which I I didn't quite understand. <laughs> I uh, think the point. <laughs> I think the point is of it's it's a. Uh comedic sketch so you kind of give it this comedy uh happy ending that is again it kind of subverts all of the characters are forced in in, in engaging in those marriages are forced to go exactly against what their character character types are for the rest of the play anyway um so kind of mm. showing the weakness in all of them but yeah it's it's completely bizarre but yeah i think that's kind of what's 
interesting about it is in all of those duologues, not only are they showing these points of view on suffrage, but actually Shaw is also giving himself an opportunity to touch on other things that he wants to kind of get, lend his satirical hand to. Absolutely. So the conversation between the prime minister and the general spends a lot of time talking about um, the power of democratic government versus the power of military um, government and the, the idea of like an autocratic military government. Um, mm. I mean, General Michener just wants to solve every issue with shooting people down. I love that uh, he slips in there. It's like he, when they, when talking about women, he says, if you shoot a woman, they go down just as a man does. And if you shoot a German, he says later in the play, they go down just as a rabbit does, which I thought, I thought, I thought was really yeah, funny. Yeah, there are so many, like there are so many sort of like really brilliant, witty one-liners um, that just have like such power. It's very sort of like Oscar Wilde-esque, yeah. I suppose, in, in that writing. Um, and it, it, it's just brilliant. Like the whole thing just, uh, it makes me laugh so much. Like this was my like third time reading mm. it for getting ready for this. And it just makes me laugh so much. Yeah, I think because obviously suffrage is, is its own issue and we no longer have that many quibbles about uh, voting rights. Although at one point he says votes for children, which is something that has come into debate in recent years. Um, but we still obviously talk a lot about uh, equality and and uh, and women's equality, especially. Um, but also, there are other political issues which you would have thought would would have faded by now that uh, that actually have taken on a new meaning in recent times. There's a lot of talk about, oh gosh, you know, or oh, bloody Labour. How how could Labour? We can't we can't be seen to be agreeing with Labour. Oh, we can you imagine if Labour, the Labour government got in? And obviously this is written, 1909, am I right in thinking there hadn't yet been a Labour government? No, no, not at all. Um, the, the first Labour government was, yeah, not going to happen until after the First World War. Um, and, and even then it didn't last very long. Um, he didn't really have any kind of strong Labour government until after the Second World War. So, yeah, Shaw was almost ahead of his time in a lot of this. Um, and a lot of the stuff that he touches upon is stuff that wouldn't become large mainstream issues for another sort of 50, 60 years after this play yeah. was written. And it, yeah, like you say, it's still so much relevance today, even though its sole focus or not its sole focus, its main focus is on suffrage. Actually, so much of what's being talked about and the way that um, suffrage is being argued back and forth between these people uh, is still so relevant. Today. Yeah, and those attitudes towards maybe not exactly the same political views, but similarly progressive political views, perhaps, or um, socially liberal ones being seen as being like the, the attitude that the, the kind of, I don't want to use the word establishment, but the attitude that maybe military people and people uh, and of that kind of view um, might have of those politics basically remains the same. Yeah, the idea that the the army is beyond politics or above politics, um, or that, that it's completely separate from when actually the the military or any military is often used as a political tool, um, and and even stuff like Lady Corinthia's whole um, idea is that she yeah like you said earlier that um, women can pull the strings from behind men, uh, they don't need the vote because actually they can control the men around them, and there are still people you know men and women that that believe that that's how it works that women don't need to be at the forefront or don't need to have any kind of real civic power because they 
control things domestically, which is a completely sort of backward way of thinking about some of these issues, but it's something that Shaw brings up here that actually I think still holds some relevance today in in debates about equality and gender roles as well. I love the... uh... Uh, is it? I think it's Mrs. Banger. Is the is it? I can't remember. I can't remember if it's Corinthia or I get confused between the two of them. Whichever one, she she starts saying, "Oh, uh, if if you if you regard history with any with any uh, analytical eye, then you'll see that Queen Elizabeth was clearly a man pretending to be a woman." Yeah, uh, all yeah. of these famous men throughout history were all women pretending to be men. And <laughs> yeah, because isn't it Banger suggests that Napoleon was? Yeah, a so woman. Would, would you have thought that um, a man would have treated women so badly as Napoleon did if he was really a man or something along those lines? Or, yeah, or, yeah, uh, yeah. And then, yeah, as you say, when, when she says something like, um, the reason why it was brought into law that men should always be in power is because when men are in power, women are really in power and then everything's okay. And when women are in power, men are really in power and everything's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and then th- there are definitely moments where within all of this, where the characters sort of stray into sort of Python-esque surrealism. Um, and, and Monty Python themselves always had a kind of fascination with military mm. characters. They're, they use them often um, kind of poking fun at, at um, yeah, what we see as the sort of masculine military man um and actually yeah that you kind of get this all the way through this is that is those kind of python-esque surreal moments that seem beyond truth but actually are are really clear uh sort of jabs at specific areas of society um so yeah it definitely has that kind of uh feel to it um yeah i suppose (laughs) we've kind of talked a bit about the play and stuff also we'll link below because it's free online to read and i would suggest reading it because it's really quite short it's only about half an hour long um so it's definitely worth a read um but let's talk about what we would do with it Uh, you talked about it would work well as a radio play i mean maybe that's what this is for because half an hour isn't really long enough to be putting it any in any kind of bill on its own it would need to be in a mixed bill um but maybe a place for it would be on the radio yeah i mean I've been thinking about this because essentially the set is a an office of some kind. It's maybe got a, a hearth, a fire. Um, it's got a table in it and it's got a door. And that's that's all you need. So on the one hand, yeah, there's not much to it. You couldn't have it in its own bill because, you know, what are you charging for tickets? 50p, you know, or, or this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, you can put it on anywhere. Um and so yeah the the radio makes that really easy you know i was thinking about the radio because we've been you know we've been considering you know having a go at something like that ourselves and this one seems kind of relatively simple to do uh small cast few sound effects few background noises and entertaining um which you know it's difficult to do you know Mm. you've got to move to in some way to have yeah 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 is, is what i would have thought but but you don't clearly, and um, so yeah. So I guess that, that that decision is, you know, if we okay, if we're going for the radio, then I think it's pretty much as read. You maybe got to cut one joke or two, and you've got to cut a couple of things. I'd change a bit of the language. There's a couple of words we just don't use anymore that people need to understand. That I maybe just would just swap out for something equivalent now. You know, something like I can't remember what the word they use for for a priest, but I didn't know what it was. I had to look it up and um, all these kind of things. 
Yeah, and the, and the cleaner's called a charwoman. Yeah, which I thought that was really a misspelling of chairwoman, and I was very confused as to why that was so yeah. in her station. I didn't, I <laughs> yeah, didn't quite yeah. understand that um, to start with. Yeah, yeah so like a, few, a couple of linguistic things, but otherwise you're basically just doing a, a, a reading, you know, maybe adding a few sound effects and with some, some good acting, good comic timing, and then and it's there. Um, yeah. So what might be more interesting is to think about considering that all you need is a door and a table, basically. Yeah. Uh, and a few chairs where where could be where would be the most outlandish and possibly practically interesting in terms of actually maybe maybe you could actually commercially make this viable what kind of space would that be you know yeah because well it's interesting you saying about it it could be put on anywhere the only record i can see of it being performed in the last 80 or 90 years apart from on the radio is uh, them doing readings at Shaw's Corner where Bernard Shaw used to live. Um, the sort of, uh, I don't know if it's mm. National Trust or, or English Heritage or something like that, um, put on readings of it every so often in the summer. Um, so it is that kind of thing where really it can be put on anywhere. Uh, those ones are obviously just sort of cold readings of it done by, you know, you know the people we work there or whatever. But yeah, I wonder if there is something outlandish that we can do with this that would really bring it to life. I'm just yeah. trying, yeah, I'm trying to think of something that would be kind of <clears throat> make the most use of it. Uh, I wonder whether maybe it's about you combine it with other works that are looking at similar things. I mentioned to you just before we got onto the podcast that there are a lot of um, works from this time that dealt with the suffragette movement. Um, some written by Shaw, um, but also some slightly earlier written by people like Pinero, but then also lots written by um, female playwrights from the time like Cicely Hamilton um, that were sort of these big feminist suffragette statements being written. And I wonder whether you pair it with some of those, um, this sort of lighter comedy, something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some kind of creative space to put it in though. Yeah, I think definitely like some kind of, not variety is the wrong word, but some kind of mix, mix bill of, you could have, yeah, other suffrage based plays from that era. You could have um, more modern plays that look back on that time. There was a play written in Oxford recently called The Only Way is Suffrage that I was involved with the first production of that, um, you know, would pair, pair nicely with these things. And and certainly that, that kind of evening, evening of, suffrage drama is certainly something viable something interesting something culturally interesting and culturally useful and yeah and actually pairing it with a more recent view on all of these issues would mm. be of of great value i think because one i think it will show just how much shaw's views have held up but also i think it will show where progression has taken place especially around the issue of gender yeah and i think something as well that's different about more modern takes is they kind of they don't forget I think they take it as given that obviously suffrage is correct, right? You know, that obviously mm. universal suffrage is, is something that, that we should aim for. And so they don't take the time particularly to look at or expose or farce the arguments at the time of people who, who didn't agree with that. Uh, yeah, and, and actually the arguments that come from them, like you say, are are subversive to what we might expect. They're not that our women are, are too weak and feeble to make these decisions and those kind of things that we're, we're given as the stereotypical arguments that we're given. Um, but but actually they're arguments that are actually voting is beneath what women want to do or, or need to do and that they, their power is elsewhere. Um, so actually, yeah, in some ways, I think because it's from the time and it's looking for something subversive within that moment, um, actually, it's 
far beyond anything that might be written today um, as trying to characterize that anti-suffrage argument. Absolutely. And I think that, I think that's just that's an interesting perspective to add to whatever kind of evening we might you might want to put on. Um, and, you know, it could be it could be an aid of, a, of some kind of women's charity and all this kind of, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I could see, you know, I could see that as a very viable, a very viable piece of theatre, you know. Definitely. I, I wonder about maybe even um, something that's talked about a lot is, well, we talked about with the Hamilton episode a while back about setting it in a, in a pub, doing it in a pub. Mm. Um, I wonder about maybe even doing like doing it in a cafe or something. There's, there's arts cafes that pop up um in all sorts of places these days and they they provide these sort of smaller spaces for small scale stuff like this and and then that way you can have audiences sat around uh tables having coffee and stuff and it can be you could even not even needing to pair it with other plays but you could pair it with talks um and even with like uh female comedians uh things like that you could pair it with actually a much more sort of not again not wanting to make it part of a variety show, but actually an evening of, of a variety of different um, sort of uh, takes on feminism uh, through different mediums, not just through theatre, um, but actually putting it in a space alongside all of these other things. Yeah, I think that that sounds that sounds yeah, again. I say that it's very viable, very very fun, very interesting. I think we'd have an audience. I think we'd have an, an, an immediate audience, especially if it was, you know, paired with a paired with a charity of some kind, as uh, as we say. Um, I like that. The thing is about a cafe is I don't know if it's got the kind of oppressive office atmosphere that actually that you'd want. I almost prefer the idea that you you said they do sometimes at, at where he lived, which is kind of almost in my head. I'm just imagining kind of that he's just sitting on a stump of a tree, but it still has that kind of atmosphere of you know coming in and out and people moving with and you're watching this thing go on yeah so i was thinking you know often around the country there's these kind of castles and stately homes and you know museums and things with with these in fact oh that's an idea the there's there are museums i think there's one in there's one just south of york that i've that i've been to once um where they have kind of like full replica or even preserved uh like bunker sets you know that are used yeah. as kind of like oh look at this this is what it looked like but there's more you can do with that kind of thing um even yeah I think and obviously in london you have the war rooms which are obviously their second world war but they are that kind of uh war office type thing right yeah and and even like i'm thinking midway up the midway up the eiffel tower is uh is a kind of that kind of officey looking museum room um and so yeah. using one of those kind of like already tourist destination spaces is sort of like a you know uh oh once a week or once a day or twice a day or whatever this you can go watch this show in this space and it deals with these issues and you you do that maybe twice a day for a couple of months or something is a sort of like special event to attract uh, more tourists to that particular museum or whatever it is yeah um, i mean even thinking about local to where we've been in oxford blenheim palace they at the moment are running an exhibition on blenheim palace in the 1920s which isn't 
you know, much later than this play. And perhaps it's about looking for the, these events happening uh, and finding a place within all of the stuff going on with those kinds of events. Because this kind of period is is one that is of interest at the moment, I think. Uh, I mean, the 20s more so perhaps, but it definitely is a period that I think in period dramas that we see on TV and um, in the focus of places like the these sort of stately homes you're talking about, is much more something within the public consciousness and actually using that and providing, um, you know, using the platform of these, these uh, tourist destinations and providing it with uh, something, a sort of cultural element, an actual look into what was being produced in the past would be interesting for sure. Absolutely. And obviously I think it's important to stress that while we're trying to fit this into here, I think, cause I think this is what we're thinking about. What do you do with this half an hour of, of really good theater? It is that it is really it's not just like oh well this only works as an educational piece like it's it's really entertaining of its own right yeah definitely but i think in if anything that that is a different kind of education right that we we have this idea that um stuff from that period has to be long and has to be um of a certain kind and and written in a kind of language that we can't really understand mm. but actually you look at this and like you say there's there's very little that needs changing for it to be understood by a modern audience um yeah. but it is funny and it is it's quick as well which is key because often sure isn't that quick and i think that it it would be a kind of education in in what entertainment was doing a hundred years ago which is just as strong as what entertainment can do now I guess the only other thing I might say on that is just that, that that idea of half an hour entertainment being a challenging one to think about in today's context, because like you said, if you're paying money to go to a theater, you want to be given a full show. Um, but actually, sometimes a full show is not as good as it seems in terms of thinking about pace and actually what what. Uh, what scale is a story on just thinking about the recent national theater live stuff some of those shows are really long and um, actually how far can our attention be stretched over that time um, does it need to be stretched over that time can we think about performing these shorter bursts of narrative and character that are perhaps more interesting for a modern audience that's used to a slightly more frenetic fast-paced um, kind of entertainment I mean I've been reading recently some um Stoppard because I'm very cultured or whatever and um and in the uh in the 80s I believe he was doing these um one hour lunch slots at um at this um I can't remember where it was but it was some kind of art center in London and he was writing plays to be part of an hour of mixed bill stuff and usually they would be between 40 minutes and like 50 minutes um and so actually there are there is a lot of stuff out there um, and it's about actually, do we, is there a place for theater that is a, of a shorter length and how do we sell that? And how do we, do people want to pay for that? And is there something that we can do with that? Yeah, but anyway, that's, that's a whole other can of worms to open, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've talked before about how there's this weird gap between small scale theater, you know, runs at an hour max, five quid to 10, to 10 quid to maybe 15 quid tickets and has a kind of audience base that is kind of interested in that kind of thing and interested in theater and possibly could be and should be built um and then there's this massive gap between that and then the west end where people are paying through the nose for a ticket and so by extension they expect an hour and a half two hours show uh and then when you get those shorter shows like six and whatever we've as we've talked about before it comes out as something as a disappointment because you paid so much money 
Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's kind of this question of, as we've, as we've talked about before, bridging that gap in, in cost and in length, uh, to, to best suit the art, because, you know, what, think of playwrights and as they're coming up before they write their, you know, magnum opuses or magnum opi, they're writing short plays. Pinter's writing hour-long plays. Stoppard's, Stoppard's writing hour-long plays. Yeah, um, and they have loads of them. And, I mean, Pinter was even writing shorter stuff, stuff that's more like this kind of length as sort of review sketches and stuff. Um, and that's what this is. I mean, the, the, the sort of subtitle of this is um, a topical sketch compiled from the editorial correspondence columns of the daily papers. So the whole point was that it was... It wasn't meant to be quite like a full play, but it's it's not a sketch in the the sense of like a sketch show, um, right? But oh, and that's why it's called press cuttings because yeah. I didn't quite get that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a little bit unclear, but I uh, yeah, it's kind of that kind of thing. Well, then, yeah, because that's that's interesting. Because so I wonder about then. I know what we're talking about with length, but this play almost feels like a scene in a bigger play. You know, yeah, it feels like these. We have a different play that can the, the hundreds of different possibilities for plays that could be addressing these issues either as a side issue or or a main point and then it can cut to these characters having this farce in the middle of it and i feel like that would be that would work definitely and know? talking about that modern talking about that modern viewpoint actually if you wrote something broader um that yeah like you say this could be a scene as part of it or even something that you know that that thing of um does something need to be part of a mixed bill or actually can we create some kind of idea of anthology storytelling within the theater like you have with black mirror and stuff like inside number nine as well i often think and i think we'll, we'll we should probably at some point we'll get onto doing an episode of inside number nine for the podcast but Absolutely. but actually those yeah. those episodes are these tight 30 minute stories that work as an anthology that all come together um, I mean, a series of Inside Number Nine is four hours long. I'm, I'm not suggesting we ask people to sit in the theatre for four hours, but actually, if you want to sit in the theatre for two and a half hours, well, why don't we tell you five stories that are like this that are connected? But it doesn't have to be part of this idea of a mixed bill. But actually, there is an it's it's an anthology of stories being told to the audience. Yeah, and that, I mean that's been done. We've looked at Alan Ackborn's Confusions. Ackborn, Ackborn. Ackborn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, George Renard Shaw himself has something like that, right? That you told me about. Um, one second. Uh, or was it you told me you told me about an an anthology like that by someone like that, but I can't remember. Who yeah, yeah. I mean, sure did he did do this one play called Man and Superman where there's a whole story going on, and then just the third act, he just set it in hell, and all of the characters from the rest of the play then took on archetypes within hell to have a long conversation Excellent. about life and meaning of life and and death and all of these things so yeah i mean it's that kind of thing um which that often gets cut from it but i think it's kind of interesting but it, yeah it is that kind of thing of there's definitely stuff out there and eggborn is a good example and eggborn always plays with form um in an interesting way i just read his play um absurd person singular which is uh it's three kitchens of three couples uh last christmas this christmas and next christmas and the whole thing is that they're kind of you could almost perform each of those as their own play because they have a beginning a middle and an end but they all come together as one long progression of three years progression of these three couples um 
So there is something to be said for that. And even with uh, more detached anthologies as well, you know, the Jamie Lloyd company spent the entirety of, not last year, but the year before, putting on most of Pinter's plays in celebration of his of his, his life. But, that you know, they would do, it was five weeks of three and then another five weeks of another three and then they did two and they grouped them by some kind of theme. I don't know exactly how they programmed them, but I'm, I'm looking up at my posters right in front of me party time and celebration were together those sound pretty similar i mean and it's it's all about uh, actually you know creative directors within a, a larger theater the, the way that they piece together a, a whole season you know is that, that they are different stories and they are different players and they're trying to cater to different audiences through a whole season but also when you hear them talk about it they are trying to find some kind of through line for what is this season of the National Theatre, what is this season of Chichester Festival Theatre? What is this season of this theatre, that theatre? What is it trying to say through that whole year? Um, mm. But actually, can you condense that thinking down to what is this evening of theatre, two and a half hours that you're paying, you know, a, you know, your, your higher uh, price tickets of £40 plus for? What is that saying? And is there a way of finding a place for one smaller show within a larger uh, production altogether and like you say because it is just a small office you could have a set that just rolls on and off or you could even have this office is this for this moment but then you spend five minutes um changing it through you know some kind of uh, choreographed transition or through you know just curtain down curtain up that kind of thing um it can become a completely different location for another show set in an office. And there's plenty of different things that are, that can be static like that um, on in the theater. Absolutely. And also thinking about that whole season thing as well, the, the, the percentage of your audience that is seeing every show or even half of the shows or even two of the shows that you put on in a season. And maybe part of that, maybe because they have similar themes, you know, actually does it, does it make sense to, to say, okay, for the next 12 months, we're going to focus on this one thing or have this one thread through it. Um, and actually, doesn't it make some more sense to have more variety? The National Theatre has come under a lot of criticism in the last few years for having a lack of diversity in their writers and their directors. Mm, yeah. Um, and I wonder if that comes out of, you know, oh, well, we're looking at this theme. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, th these are who's writing about the, this theme. And, oh, I guess only, you know, one of them is, well, two of them are women or only one of them is 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 bame and and yeah i, I don't know I, I i don't know i haven't thought that yeah but I, and, that's an interesting... and i think it's something that yeah can cause can be a cause for tokenism within um creating these programs um it can also be something that um can help you break through from tokenism um and if mm. if you decide Actually, we're going to do a, a two and a half hour anthology production, in, including press cuttings by George Bernard Shaw. Um, and we want to hear from different perspectives on gender or on women's rights. Um, any of these, you know, that sort of those broader categories, you could bring a really varied um, bill together of different uh, different shows um, and different sort of sketches and things. Um, but they don't necessarily have to be coming from the same angle. So this is a man writing about feminism in the early 1900s, and then you you bring a, a more modern uh, feminist perspective to it, and you bring um, the sort of uh, the perspective of uh, minority women into it as well, BME women, um, and 
again, it's about balancing that so that it's not like, okay, this is the BME perspective on it. Um, but it's about actually how do we bring all of these voices together to create something that's broad, but um, that doesn't feel the need to dilute any of those voices by making them not have their own space to say what they want to say. Yeah. And to not see, as you just said, to not see one voice from a particular angle as the voice from a particular angle, because I think I, I, I've, I, I've, what was I going to say? I was going to say I've I've noticed it recently with with unorthodox from my own background that you know having one piece of art from that describes one minority background is just one story from that and it, it almost certainly because you know fiction is interesting and interest is abnormal and so or at least in the main and so and so probably isn't that representative an experience and so i think kind of the way we move i mean my opinion is not that interesting but you know when not you know not, not that relevant but, but the way that we move from tokenism to actual equality and diversity in art is is the same way in which we see we see oh okay so there's the perspective of as you say um the man george bernard shaw who is a feminist in the 1900s who also has this background and this background and this background and is also this and that and this doing that for not just white people <laughs> not just yeah and not just men yeah I guess yeah definitely yeah. i think that's really important is that idea of actually uh where does this black playwright come from and where does this black playwright come from and and what you know what perspectives are they bringing to these things i think and that it's something that i think about a lot is this idea of actually of thinking about intersectionality um you know lots of female voices come from the upper classes um ones that we hear and that's great that we get to hear a female voice but we also want to hear working class female voices um and it's about thinking about those broad categories and actually how do they interact with each other how do they intersect and making sure that you're hearing this breadth of conversation from multiple different voices um that aren't just ticking boxes but are actually really showing the variety within our society and showing that through art i think that's so important and i think that idea that you're saying about um i've seen a lot about unorthodox i've not gone around to watching it yet but that idea that it's giving such a specific viewpoint i think like such a, a toxic phrase is that idea of someone being the voice of a generation um and saying you know you know or even like people specify more and they're like oh this is like this is the black voice of the generation or whatever and it's like well that what about all the people that you know don't agree with that but actually do come from from some similar background what about people who don't find themselves identifying with all of these issues that this thing is bringing up and actually that's something that needs to be thought about and talked about uh, <laughs> this is such a tangent from this play um but <laughs> i guess it comes uh, into the... do you, you watch this segue i'm coming in with <laughs> okay brilliant well <laughs> give me the segue then <laughs> so speaking of diversity amongst women i want to talk about how we differentiate these three female characters of Mrs. Farrell, Mrs. Banger, and 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 Fanshawe. Mm, mm. Yeah, definitely. Back to the play. <laughs> uh, back to the play. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I suppose what's brilliant about the writing um, and what you can show in in production is that they are very different female voices, um, and and they come from very different places. I mean, um, Lady Corinthia is. Um, you know she's she's upper class and she's 
trained you know to a certain extent to, to be a very specific kind of lady she's meant to be elegant and she's meant to be uh this musician and artistic and romantic um and then uh not only that so you have that type but then it's subverted in that the way she's introduced to us is that she puts a gun in general uh Michener's face um so i think the important thing about all of these female characters is there is a type that Shaw's showing us and then there is a subversion of that type um so in casting mm. lady corinthia you would look for someone that fits the bill of you know elegant um sort of uh you know thinking about stuff like how do they hold themselves posture movement things like that but also someone who can then just like flick the switch um and completely play against type and that's just looking for for actors that that have that variety which you know a decent actor will um but yeah i guess it's about finding the type that they're meant to be is a lady corinthia of like this elegant upper class and mrs banger's like slightly bit bit more rough um this idea of her being a bit more what is like traditionally masculine um and thinking about those things um and then mrs farrell is a bit more i, I guess that this uh, it's a horrible oh, i can't think of a better word but like homely or domestic um and then also how do they play against those types um and that's the way that you've got to think about it um and in some ways in in that sense you want to make them seem as much like their type as possible from the the start so that when they play against it um it's even more of a subversion of what that character is yeah that makes sense i yeah. feel like i rambled a lot no 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 no. i think i think that's i think that's that was what i was getting at uh, that sense of like they're all the same but different in the sense that they're all archetypes of the time of an attitude that then subverted yeah and so you could they could seem to be i don't know I, w I read it very quickly and so it, it, I, one one moment i went oh this is farrell i thought it was corinthia and because they are all coming in with this kind of like i am not what you think i am mm, mm. In, the, in their dialogue in the actually what they say um and so you've got to look at the details of those characterizations and i think yeah i think visually and if you're doing this as as we have we, we've been talking about on on a on a kind of staging then that that's quite easy but on the radio if we were thinking about that possibility uh it might be quite difficult and as you say um it's about getting that casting right yeah yeah and and thinking about things like i mean obviously mrs farrell you have the benefit of she has an irish accent so there's that but thinking about those things about speech patterns actually does lady corinthia speak more slowly and and more measured and is mrs banger a bit sort of faster um, and a bit more sort of aggressive and pointed in, in the way that she's speaking. Mm -hmm. And those are all things, I mean, obviously those are things that you leave partly up to the actor. Um, and it's, it's part of a conversation between the whole cast and the director and the actor. And that happens in different ways organically, you know, according to who put this on. But about it's about thinking about those things and about movement as well and about all of those things. And actually about, actually in the text... Um, Shaw's quite clear about how these are, are different people. Um, and a part of that is he signals that in when they're talking about the anti-suffragette league, um, Michener's, 
saying this and that about how they're they, these quiet, meek women. And then both of these women come in and completely change his view on that um, immediately. So it, mm. yeah, it's within the text that we should be expecting one thing and being shown another thing. And you yeah. can do that in the way that in, in the way that they come across it through their speech and movement in the performance as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like the idea that, <laughs> that the, uh, the Corinthia just kind of sings the last, three words whatever she says <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, i could really see that i could really see that um i could see it, uh, not even just the last three words of what she says just like certain lines could very much be done in that that way um i, I yeah it's definitely that kind of thing and because it's farcical and because the the characters are kind of thinly sketched as characters but um quite specific um in in what part of society they're satirizing you have the opportunity to be a little bit cartoonish to be have a little bit of fun and to place more emphasis on the laughs than on um the the sort of trying to show oh this is this character or this is that character or really you know as an actor get really in depth in who is mrs banger or whatever i think it's something that you know actors often think about this idea of you know an exercise a director might do of an actor early in the process is like oh you know what what would your you know your character have had for breakfast or whatever and it's like um mrs banger you know if you're playing mrs banger what what do you care what she had for breakfast as a as a hypothetical concept and david mamet um who is a playwright and a dramatist thinks uh, talks a lot about this idea of actually those questions that go beyond what's happening in the scene um have less and less value the further from the scene they they go um if you're asking you know does my character definitely brush their teeth twice a day or whatever actually you're losing sight of what's happening in the scene it's valuable to think of these characters as people um but actually they also they exist within this play um and i think that there's a sense of actually with these characters you don't need to dig deep as an actor but you just need to have fun with it and you need to be uh using the broad archetypes and really playing into those to draw the comedy out and to point out the flaws in who their their points of view that that shaw himself is trying to do mm. <laughs> so i talked for a lot there i just yeah no, 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 no. Too long in I've, isolation. I've, I haven't talked about theatre in such a long time. It's suddenly. It's yeah. It's a out. nice outlet, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's why we yeah. do this partly, you know. So, yeah, and you I mean, similar. You've got a similar thing with the prime, the prime minister and the general. But they both read on surface level as shouty posh men. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, as you say, finding that distance. I think I think people would debate with you. You know, I'm I'm not going to. I don't know enough. But I think people would say, you know. Well, it's really important you know if, if he doesn't brush his teeth if she doesn't brush her yeah teeth, yeah for sure I, I, i'm very happy for people that, that <laughs> says something about someone you know yeah and so but but also i see how yeah that of course that is less valuable than did they um like have they eaten yet today you know that's that's you know that's and i can see how that itself is less valuable than well how are they feeling at the beginning of this scene yeah yeah um, when you start to get into the actual writing but is there a point where uh, there's no value to it at all maybe not maybe but... not and i don't i'm not uh, yeah i'm not definitely saying there isn't i think it you know it's kind of reductive to say the moment you step out of the scene there is no value in in interrogating what that character is i guess what i'm saying is that especially with a production of something like this there is there is very little need to look beyond what 
is given to us in in the dialogue and actually once you dig into that there is humor and there is you know weakness within these characters and there is fragility within what they're saying that an actor can really dig their teeth into without having to think about mrs banger as a real person she's not you know in this play i don't think she is a real person because she is a type and she's a type and then she's a subversion of that type and actually when you accept that in a production of this i think what you're going to get out is something that's really funny that's really fast that's really clever and energetic and i think that that is what you're looking for with a production of something like this as soon as you get into like i don't know some kind of like you know like a a miller or a, a a Tennessee Williams tragedy or something. Obviously, there's there's deeper places to go with some of these characters, and you want to look beyond the text, and you want to think about what they're, you know, what they're representing beyond that. But um, I think with something like this, it is about thinking about what what is Shaw giving us, and how can I make the most of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it this is different in that way, in that it's you know it's it's an extended sketch. Really, it's not it's not looking to interrogate these characters on some kind of like personal level you're not supposed to feel really like oh i don't like this person or i like this person it's not that's not that's not what that's for and if you're not trying to make the audience feel those pathoses then there's no need as you say to go in that direction i think i agree with you yeah yeah that's something that it comes down to what you know what kind of production is it and and i think that with this what we're talking about is it, it's got to be entertainment first and foremost. Um, and like you said, like there is obviously educational value in the historical importance of this um, and in, you know, and where we put it on could be part of that. But actually um, the value of it is that it is entertaining. It's really, really funny. And like I said earlier, I think, you know, we'll, we'll put the link in the description, but definitely give it a read because it, it will surprise you how funny it is and how funny these characters are. Definitely, definitely. Like I found myself really laughing out loud on my own reading it and it that's 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 a rare thing even with the funniest of scripts i think yeah for sure for sure okay is there anything else we want to talk about uh i think i've yeah i think that's pretty much everything that i've got yeah it's it's one of those ones where we don't really have a subversion on it because because it is a study in subversion subverting it would would be to take it too far do you know what i mean i agree I agree. And I, I think, well, and I was thinking about this idea of, we talk a lot about period pieces. Would we keep it in period? Would we modernize it? You've got to keep it in period. It's so of its time. And I think it has things that transcend its time to tell us about today. But I think in terms of actual production, you can't take it outside of that moment, really. Yeah. I mean, I, as I was reading it, I kept trying to think of like, oh, would this work now? Would it work then? Would it work then? And bits of it do. I think the 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 bit, all the stuff with the orderly could probably be any time um but the issue of suffrage is the issue of suffrage and yeah to make it about something else would basically to be writing a different play i think yeah 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 for sure unless i mean unless you changed it in terms of uh i don't know like it maybe even in terms of like national setting and you changed it to like somewhere where uh women got the vote later and you and you brought it up to then um but even then i think you're really pushing it i think you're really pushing it on actually mm. its value because mm. there is obviously a value in in that it's interrogating the british establishment as well um, i think so. i think what can be done is is the the kind of structure of it and the idea behind it can be could be replicated in a, something that talked about an issue of today you know they could, you could write yeah. something along these lines to do with let's say gay marriage gender neutral toilets um but as i say 
you'd, you'd have to rewrite all the jokes you'd have to rewrite all the characters but you could use that structure and i think that's something interesting yeah you know, that's something that could be done um in fact yeah, maybe that's sure. maybe that's where you could put it you could put it in a bill of of almost four of the same play but set at different times different characters different jokes but with the same kind of structure i don't know if that would get boring or if that would be interesting but yeah i wonder i mean i wonder whether there is some value in in using this form and and like you say applying it to different contexts um and applying it to those modern issues um i mean there's even maybe even a place for this on something along the lines of like the remain leave stuff something like that we've had enough of that um, haven't we? <laughs> yeah I, I mean i think we have yeah yeah but, <laughs> i mean yeah if we were recording this two years ago there might be some value in that but at this point yeah i know i think it's funny because um, it's funny at what point it's a discussion a lot at the moment at what point can art look back on itself or look back or not not look back on itself but look back at history and then decide to say something about it because you know right yeah. now everyone's saying oh the last thing i want when this is all over is 10 plays about covid everywhere and everyone complains every yeah. year when half the fringe is trump jokes and all this kind of thing and and they obviously they have a point you know if it's not interesting if it's boring if it's been done if it's overdone then 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 there's something to be said about that but at the same time you know what is what is theater what is any art form other than a reflection of real life and, yeah i guess and so i the, i thought about this recently the same issue um watching uh james graham's quiz the adaptation for the tv recently on itv yeah uh, which it. i'd it's encourage great. yeah anyone to watch it's so good and i'm so sad i missed it on the stage because watching on tv you can kind of feel where there are stagey elements that would have been even better in the theater i think absolutely um well my parents actually got to see it when it was on my dad was telling me that um they asked the audience to vote at the end of the first act whether they thought they were guilty or not guilty using an electronic system and then wow. the same thing at the end of the second act and then they give you the live audience results so just stuff like that is just really cool that's really um, cool. anyway but but the point i was going to make is that, that in that you know this isn't going to spoil anything but there's a conversation taking place and then someone switches the tv channel and suddenly 9-11's happening um and it doesn't you know there's no explicit thing of this changes the narrative but there is something in that oh this narrative is set then and this had an impact on that and the same thing can be seen in um i don't know if you've seen spotlight the film about um the investigative journalists um investigating uh priest pedophilia in boston um but same thing happens there's i think there is recently there's a little bit of a tradition of not tradition but I've seen a few times you do this thing where you and not through anything other than that is when they're setting it, but someone they'll show the date as like the seventh of September two thousand and one or something, and they won't show the date for a bit, and they'll kind of deliberately sneak it up on you as yeah yeah as as that that happened then, which is interesting. With Spotlight, what's what's interesting about it is it's set a bunch you know amongst investigative journalists and then this happens and suddenly the breakthrough they're about to make can't happen because they have to focus on the newsroom and on the impact of that and i think about this and the fact that covid19 is every news story i mean i watched i i'm trying not to watch the news at the moment but i watched bbc the other night and every single news story was coronavirus related 
Um, and I think that it will be, uh, my hope is that actually rather than coming out of this and every single play and every single film and every single TV show is what did you get up to in lockdown or whatever, actually what it will be is in a few years time, we'll start to see stuff come up where they're telling actual stories and then suddenly COVID-19 is just a part of that story yeah. and something that impacts that story. I think that makes sense. Um, I guess my issue with, like you say, it's, it's not even about that you couldn't do a good coronavirus play you definitely could someone could um but the point is one person could and then everyone else would just be writing a, another coronavirus uh, yeah I, I i get that i think the difference between everything else and this particular thing is i for me playwrights oftentimes they're trying the best ones anyway they're trying to find a good excuse to put people in a room together and make them uncomfortable and not let them leave you know, some of the best plays are, especially Pinter, uh, are set in, you know, one room or two rooms. And it's about co compressing people into a small space and seeing how they interact with each other when, when they would rather not at all. And yeah. what this particular event has done for theatre more than anything else is given every playwright for every situation, for every single type of character, for every single job description, a free pass, a free excuse to put them in the same room for as long as they like. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is interesting creatively because it means that you that that's just something you can do now, and you can and it's believable. Whereas before, if you said, "Oh, you know what? I'd really like to see what happens when a farmer and a banker have to sit in a room for two days." Yeah. You, almost impossible to think of a, a real and a believable reason for them to for that to happen yeah, yeah. whereas now now, now say that they're one. brother and sister and they've come home during the lockdown <laughs> or whatever exactly yeah. exactly and so that i think will be an interesting device to see if it that is used or whether that's seen as a cop-out and not used i hope that it will be seen as a cop-out i really do because i think you know like i said before i think it it, it will be that there are you know, out of a thousand playwrights, one or two of them will be able to create something that really, really taps into what this experience is for people. And then yeah. all of the others will fall short. And that's not to say, you know, that's any playwright would be that because it's, it's something that is so, because everyone is affected by it to capture that, to be able to say this is definitively what it is like transcending one specific situation and actually saying this is what coronavirus was like for everyone is just going to be impossible it's an impossible task for a playwright to set themselves um for, for sure absolutely and i yeah. think it, yeah i wonder cause the comparison possibly is i mean so we've recently had a different kind of major event in the financial crash and that similarly hasn't Again, people people in plays and people in art have lived lived through it, and they have they're set at that time, but they don't they're not they're not about that particularly. Maybe the exception of Enron, but again, Enron's about about that that was a warning, and it's not about that in particular. Yeah, and sit and thinking similarly about how like you know the first world war there's loads of plays, loads of poetry, and and people often talk about how there's there's almost nothing for the second world war. Um, I guess you have film for the Second World War, and that's about the change in medium that happened. Um, between yeah, them. perhaps because the war film is mostly set in the Second World War, often rather than the First World War. May yeah, film second, but everything else first. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, First World War was trench warfare. It was people stuck in a place together. Um, Second yeah. World War wasn't that. It's, it is that. I didn't. I hadn't thought about that yet. But actually, I think that that's a really good point. Is that it's this idea of people are just stuck in a place, and that's exactly as a playwright what you want to do. 
well not necessarily but a lot of playwrights do um yeah that's interesting anyway we again we've gone way off topic but th- that's fine i think like you said this is a it's a shorter play and i think what we've talked about is that actually it, it's adaptable and and you could put it wherever you need to put it and um there are some more interesting things to think about in terms of actually where does it fit within a billing um is it you know is it part of a diverse uh story or narrative around feminism and around suffrage that we want to tell um and do we want to have it in a traditional setting um you know or, or do we want to try and put it in you know you know something a bit broader like you know doing it outdoors or doing it in these stately homes that we have around the country um that are already tourist destinations these are just all just interesting thoughts I, again i think the script speaks for itself and i think as someone who would be interested in directing this, um, I, I think that I would let the script speak for itself and encourage the actors to do so as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, great. I mean, nice. I think that's our hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have no guests to thank this time. No, so we don't. Well, thank we... you, Chavel. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> this has been great. <laughs> thank you, Caleb. And thank you, listener, for deciding that you will spend some of your time inside or perhaps in the future outside. Um <laughs> Uh, listening to us chat about theatre uh, we hope you are safe and well and uh, Caleb where can people find you online where can they well um, always online at the moment pretty much no um, I, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at Caleb Lebster that's C-A-L-E-B L-E-B-S-T-E-R uh, Jake where can people find you online I am on Twitter at Jake Reesh, that's J-A-K-E-R-E-E-S-H, and this is the Maybe You Like It podcast, and we are Maybe You Like It Productions. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Maybe You Like It, that's with the letter U, or you can find us on Facebook at Maybe You Like It with the word U, or you can find us by visiting our website at www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk, or drop us an email at maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Um, uh, yeah, and tell people about it. Because people, loads of people are asking for podcast suggestions at the moment. So if you like it, let people know. Give us a review. That's a thing, right? Is that something, something we're meant to say? Perhaps? Yeah, give us a review. Cheer us around. All the things you do with things you like. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. Okay, well, maybe you like that. Maybe you didn't. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much. That was a Maybe You Like It production. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't.